I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 55 this morning. Psalm 55. Now, Psalm 55 comes at what I think of as a very opportune point in this second book of the Psalms. It brings this series of mass skills, or uh, I think the New King James translates them contemplations, to a close, Psalms 52 to uh, 55 all have that similar uh, a phrase in the title, a contemplation of David. A maskil is the term there. Uh, and Psalm 55 appears to be written under different circumstances from Psalms 52 to 54. Uh, they were written, of course, when David was fleeing from King Saul. But this psalm, I think, conveys the sense of desperation and anxiety that David must have felt at some of those earlier times. Now, there's really not any historical data here in the title of the psalm or in the psalm itself to help us to pinpoint the time and the circumstance that prompted David to write it. But there is one interesting point that I want to observe in the psalm's heading. Actually, it's found in the heading of Psalm 56, where it says, to the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands. This is a tune, uh, apparently, that the psalm was to be sung to. Now, it seems to fit very well with Psalm 55 and verse 6, where David says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. And so this, I would just make this observation that this seems to give some support to what we've said before about the titles of the Psalms, that the musical notations actually occur at the end of the Psalm and the historical and authorial uh, parts occur at the beginning. And we said that what's happened is in the time since these Psalms were written, that has been somewhat confused. And so the musical notations have gotten attached to the next Psalm. And so the heading, part of the heading of Psalm 56, I think, actually belongs to Psalm 55, the title or the, the tune, the, the silent dove in distant lands. Now, if you can figure out the tune for that, Greg, we can sing it to the silent dove in distant lands later. That's not the tune we'll be singing later on, okay? Uh, but anyways, I just, I thought that was interesting and I wanted to point that out. It kind of gives some support to that idea that we said that we think that that is how uh, the titles really kind of should be handled. And so the musical notations go to the end and the other at the beginning. And so I would say that they were misplaced here, uh, be, being put at the beginning of the next psalm. Psalm 55 is a really important reminder, though, of a simple truth that we need to hear. And so if I could say it in a sentence, I would put it this way. Psalm 55 says to us that the solution to our trials is not flight, but faith in God. The solution to our trials is not flight, but faith in God. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we study this psalm and hopefully see this uh, principle brought forward to us uh, in the words of Psalm 55. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I come to you this morning asking that you would minister to us through your word. 
That's what we need this morning. Uh, we don't need a, a fancy message or a flashy outline or, or some show of a skill on my part, but what we need is you to take your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to open it up to us so that we could see it and understand it and then to take it and apply it to our hearts because only you know exactly what we need this morning. And I pray that you'd minister to us according to each and every need that we have. That you would meet our needs using your word by the power of your spirit. And we give you thanks for that as you do it, Lord. I pray that you'd use me to be your instrument so that that might happen today. And that you would receive glory and honor in all the things that are done. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in 1998, Southwest Airlines introduced a series of ads for their discounted fares that all followed the same basic theme. And you probably have seen these ads. Somewhere in, uh, someone in the ad would do something embarrassing. And the voiceover would ask, Want to get away? And then it would share details about their surprisingly low fares, you know, to places like Cleveland and Des Moines. I don't, I don't know. I just, okay. But, you know, this, I, I don't know if you knew this, but this ad campaign actually ran for an entire decade beginning in 1998. And then last year in 2016, after having taken almost 10 years off, they reintroduced the ad campaign because it was so popular. They even offered uh, last year a free vacation on a tropical island off the coast of Belize as a prize for customers who shared their own embarrassing stories. They called it Want to Get Away Island. Well, when they brought the campaign back last year, one of their ad directors uh, was interviewed in an article that I read about it and said that the campaign has become so closely associated with Southwest Airlines that most people will think it never left. I think they've struck, they've struck a chord with people. That's why the ad campaign works. Because we all can relate to the feeling of wanting to get away at some point. Now, the circumstances of Psalm 55 are very different, okay, from the circumstances that are portrayed in those commercials. David wasn't dealing with an embarrassing social situation. He was dealing with a hostile enemy and a betrayer. But in the, opening verse, in the opening verses of this psalm, his instinct, his first instinct, is to run away, to get away. Look at what he says there, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Salah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Now for the purpose of an outline, I've entitled this first part of the psalm, Despair. This is David's 
cry of anxiety and grief as he lifts his voice to the Lord. And and I want you to notice that he does mention his enemies in verse 3, but the focus here of of these opening verses is really almost entirely on David's own state. He entreats God in these opening verses to listen to his complaints. He voices them loudly and continuously. See, that's how he describes his prayer in verse 2. Okay, I'm looking at Psalm 57. That didn't help. He says, I'm restless in my complaint. He says, I moan noisily. He's talking about prayer here. He says, my prayer is is complaining, and it's an uproar. It's a loud noise. That's what David says here. Now, have you ever experienced something like this? I'm sure that you have. That restlessness, the overwhelming desire to complain to God, to yell and even to roar at Him. Notice what brings it on in verse 3. It's the voice of the enemy, he says, because of the voice of the enemy. The oppression, uh, the hatred of the wicked. Again, he's not complaining here about trouble that he has brought on himself, right? He's complaining here about the way he is being treated by others. Specifically about their words, which are intended to wound him. To cause trouble to come crashing down all around him and on top of him. He's got a legitimate complaint, doesn't he? I mean, he's being mistreated, shamefully treated, and his suffering is is real. He is hurting. He is in distress. We've all heard the cliche, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we know better. And over and over again, Throughout the Psalms, even these first 54 or 55 Psalms that we've studied, we've seen over and over again the real damage that is done by harsh and hateful words. It's not imaginary. David is suffering because of the words of his enemies. Notice how he describes their impact on him in verses 4 and 5. Heart, he says, severely pained within me. This has hurt him deeply. Down in the deepest part of his being, he is suffering. He speaks here about terrors and horror that has overwhelmed him. And so we're not talking about somebody who's just having a bad day. This is a serious problem, and it's having a serious impact on David's heart and his life. He says here that fearfulness and trembling have come upon him. Now just think about that for a minute. David, of all people, says, I, I, fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. Horror overshadows me. I mean, this is the same guy who, as a teenager, marched out to fight Goliath, the nine-foot-tall, battle-hardened warrior. doesn't sound very much like the man who valiantly fought to protect his fellow Israelites, even when he himself was on the run from King Saul. 
sounds much more like a man who has all but given up. At least that's how he feels anyways. And it almost sounds distraught when he says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, in verse 6. I'd fly away and be at rest. I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. I mean, it's just David wanting to get away. David wanting some escape. Some place where he could lie down in safety and not be afraid for his life. And we read these opening verses of Psalm 55 and then compare them to other words that were written by the same man at a different point in his life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we read these opening verses of Psalm 55, there seems to be very little of that simple faith left. That ability that David had to lie down and rest with absolute confidence that God would protect him and that God would help him. Has David lost his faith here in Psalm 55? Well, I don't think so. And I don't think Psalm 55 is at odds with Psalm 23 or anything else. There's not any contradiction here. But I think Psalm 55 gives us a much closer look into David's heart as he struggles to deal with his pain and his loss. These opening verses here reveal how low David had become. Remember hearing, uh, hearing some messages a few years ago from a man who was talking about David and David's struggle with depression and despair and how we maybe gloss over that sometimes. We have the idea that, well, you know, if you know Christ, you should just be able to pop out of it, whatever it is, just kind of, you know, snap out of your problems. You shouldn't have any issues. But then we read David, we read the Psalms, and we see that there were times when David wrestled with despair and, 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 and depression, and he struggled to, to trust in God. And, 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 and it really invites us to enter into that struggle and to see that, that David was just like we are. Here was a man that God used so powerfully and so mightily, and yet here's a man who struggled incredibly with despair and doubt. His heart wanting to run. David really had come very low, 
had come to a low point here. Again, we don't know when this was. We don't know what the circumstances were exactly. But whatever it is, clearly David in these opening verses is troubled. He is at a point where it seems like he's almost ready to give up. But, but let me just say this, that even here in these verses, there is a glimpse of the solution to his problem. Because what is he doing? What is he doing as he cries about all of these things? Who is he crying to? That's where he's airing his complaints, right? Not to men, but to God. So, you can maybe see where this is going to go. David, even as he cries out desperately for help, in the very act of doing so, it gives us a glimpse into the solution to the problem here. Now, there's a very sudden shift that takes place between verses 8 and 9. In fact, this psalm has a number of sudden shifts back and forth. We're not going to maybe touch on every one of them here, but if you read through it, it kind of goes back and forth from one thing to the next very suddenly, and we get the sense of the great deal of emotion that David was wrestling with. That he doesn't take time to smooth over the transitions and get creative. He just, it's just pouring out his heart to the Lord here. And so there's this, this shift here as David is, is passing from anxiety to anger. Almost in an instant. Look at verse 9. He, but remember what he just has said. If I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and escape. And then he says in verse 9, Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in this city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. David begins crying out to the Lord in despair. And very quickly, he moves to the subject of his enemies. And so I've entitled this portion of the psalm, Disloyalty. He begins here, and he ends by mentioning acts of judgment that God had performed in the past. This is the problem of disloyalty. In verse 9, he refers to the Tower of Babel. You say, well, wait a second. How is the Tower of Babel in view? I don't see anything about Babel in verse 9. Well, look what he asks God to do. Divide their tongues. This is a reference David is making back to the Tower of Babel. By the way, as a side note, in Sunday school we're talking about why does Genesis matter? Is Genesis really historical? Well, here again, David refers back to one of those events in the opening 11 chapters of the book of Genesis as a foundation, as a basis for what he's asking God to do. David certainly considered it to be historical. Okay. And he says, 
God, divide their tongues. You did this before. I want you to do it again. God divided at the Tower of Babel the tongues of all mankind because they were united in rebellion against the Lord. And just as God thwarted their plan by dividing their languages, by making communication impossible, David is asking that God divide the tongues of his own enemies. In essence, what he's saying is turn them against one another. Give them conflicting advice. Have, their, their, you know, have them come into conflict because their tongues will be divided. Prevent them from joining forces to destroy David. But the problem here, as David sees it, is there are no virtuous men. There are no faithful men about that he can trust. Notice what he says. Go to the walls. Verse 10. Go to the walls that surround the city. What do you see there? Violence and strife. Go from there to the middle of the city. Go to the public marketplace. And what do you see there? Iniquity and trouble. Destruction. It's everywhere, he says. The whispers of deceit. Wicked men are plotting and scheming how they can take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Nothing is ever done about them, David says. And David says, you know, it would be different if these men would just declare where they stand. You know? If they hate me, just say they're my enemy. Just stand up and and say who they are. Take sides. I mean, when you know someone's your enemy, you can prepare for them, right? You can prepare a defense. You can protect yourself because you know where it's coming from. I, did, I remember when I was in high school, I played football. And uh, uh, I, I remember one day in practice, our coach, now I'm not really sure why he did this other than because it was fun to do, but um, he gave us a drill where one guy would stand in the middle of a circle and all the other guys would be around the outside. And every guy around the outside was assigned a number. And the coach would stand there and the guy in the middle would be spinning and turning back and forth as quickly as he could, looking. And the coach would call out a number. And when he called out the number, the guy who had that number was going to run into the middle and hit the guy in the middle. And the guy in the middle had to turn and see it coming and had to take on the hit and drive him off. No sooner did you do that, the coach called another number and another guy was coming. But you didn't know where he was coming from. And at first, it was easy because it's one through, you know, you go around the circle. But after that, guys get mixed up, and you never knew where the ne- next one was coming from. And you're in the middle, and you're trying to turn around as fast as you can. You don't know where the hit is coming from. And my older brother, Ben, was playing with me that year, and he was in the drill too. And he hit me harder than anybody had ever hit me before in my life. <laughs> I think he relished the opportunity to kept, catch me from behind. And I didn't get turned around fast enough. And I spun around, and he was right there and just <laughs> laid me out. But it's a lot easier if you can see it coming, right? You can prepare for it. You know where it's coming from, but when you don't know where it's coming, when you don't know who it is that's attacking, how do you defend yourself? How do you protect yourself? When it's somebody that you think is your friend, right? And then they turn against you, how can you defend yourself? Now, I don't think that Psalm 55 is necessarily a messianic prophecy, right? I don't think it's necessarily written as a prophecy about Christ. But can't we see, can't you see here some parallels between what David is talking about here and what Judas did to Jesus? I mean, David's talking here about not 
somebody who declared himself an enemy, but somebody who was my equal, who's my friend, somebody that I, I, I shared fellow, fellowship with, I was my companion, someone that I went, and he says, he talks here about walking to the house of God together with this person. And, and, and again, I don't think this is a prophecy about Judas, but I do think it's hard to read this and not think about Judas who spent three years with Jesus, you know, walking where he walked, eating where he ate, sleeping where he slept, ministering with him, preaching and casting out demons and healing people, only to betray him. And, and, and how do you protect yourself from that kind of betrayal? How do you guard yourself when it's a friend, when it's someone who's familiar, someone that you're considered an equal? David said this is someone that he shared both public and private fellowship with. And this guy turned against him and has reproached him. That's how he describes it there in verse 12. It's not an enemy who reproaches me. No, it's a friend who reproaches me. The word reproach there means to slander. Well, whoever this was, David never saw the attack coming because they, they shared such close fellowship. J.J. Stewart Perone put it this way, to have trusted and to find his trust betrayed. To have been one with a man in public and in private, bound to him by personal ties and by the ties of religion. And then to find honor, faith, affection, all cast to the winds. This was what, this it was that seemed so terrible. This is what called for the withering curse. This was a betrayal. And so while we might think it seems harsh of David in verse 9 to talk about God dividing their tongues and thinking back to the Tower of Babel, we might think it harsh in verse 15 when he says, let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell. David was speaking here with raw emotion having been betrayed by someone that he trusted. This judgment that he talks about in verse 15, I said that both at the beginning and the end of this portion, he's referring back to something God had done. You may remember back in Numbers chapter 16, when Korah and Dathan and Abiram came up against Moses. And they challenged Moses' leadership and Moses' authority. And they tried to uh, assert themselves as leaders, as equals with Moses. They led a rebellion against Moses and they slandered Moses. Remember they said, Moses, you're only doing this for selfish reasons because you want to lord it over us. What did God do? to Korah and Dathan and Abiram and to the thousands of Israelites who followed them. Remember the earth opened up beneath them, swallowed them whole and living down into the pit. That's what David is talking about here. Let death seize them. Let them go alive into hell. He's saying, let the earth swallow them up. Just as you did to these other men, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, their rebellion. Do that to these who have betrayed. 
And the reasoning for that he, he gives us in the end of verse 15, wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. In other words, the sin is not limited just to themselves or their actions. It's a part of society at large and it's inherent within them. They are completely and totally corrupt. And he says there's no solution other than for them to be destroyed. And David here is burning with righteous anger. But, just as we saw that very um, abrupt transition from verses 8 to verse 9, so from verse 15 to verse 16, we have another very abrupt transition. All of a sudden, the focus and the tone of the psalm changes again. On one moment he's saying, let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell. And then verse 16, as for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. For there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. Salah. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out their, half their days. But I will trust in you. The third movement of this song is very important. The first, we said, was focused almost entirely on David's distress and his anxiety. The second was focused on the corruption of sin and its consequences. But we don't need to give in to restless fear. Nor should we spend all our time worrying about the fate of the ungodly. The best response is this third way that he suddenly turns to in verse 16. I call it dependence. As for me, he says, other men may be false and deceitful, other men may be hateful. They may be violent, desperately wicked. And others may succumb to fear. They may run away and hide from the danger. But not David. David commits himself to prayer. I will call upon God, he says. This is his hope. That Yahweh, the great covenant-keeping God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, will deliver him. Again, I want you to notice, though, in verse 17, how he speaks about prayer. Because twice, in verse 2, he talks about his prayer. And again, in verse 17, he talks about prayer. And it's interesting. I think that our translators here in the New King James, at least, may have tried to soften the tone a little bit. It says there, at evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. But the words pray and cry aloud are the exact same words that are translated complaint and moan noisily in verse 2. And so we shouldn't get the idea that David is planning to hold a prayer meeting where he will quietly and reservedly offer up prayers to God. 
What he's saying here is, I'm going to keep on complaining and crying out and murmuring to the Lord. Now, you might, you might hear that and say, wait a second, doesn't God hate complaining and murmuring? I mean, isn't that why he punished the Israelites for 40 years and they wandered in the wilderness and they complained and they murmured over and over again and God punished them and, and, and brought all sorts of different judgments to bear because of their complaining? And then I would say yes and no. Because God does hate complaining. But God didn't really judge them for the act of complaining so much as for the object of their complaint. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Actually, Charles Spurgeon explains it better than I can. He says, we may not complain of God, but we may complain to him. We may not complain of God, but we may complain to Him. See, our tendency is to want to go around and complain of God, right? We want to call somebody up and say, you won't believe what just happened to me. This is terrible. I can't believe it. It's horrible. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's not right. It's not fair. And we go on and on and on and on and on with our complaints to someone else about God. Now, you may not think it's about God. You may be saying, well... You know, you don't know how I was treated by this person. And this, you know, this person or that person or this thing happened and it wasn't fair. But remember, God is the one. God is the one who supplies our needs. God is the one who leads and guides and directs. And so if you're going to complain about your husband or your wife, about your children, if you're going to complain about your circumstances in life, if you're going to complain about your finances or your job or whatever it is you're going to complain about, the weather... Uh, your car, you know, the bitterness of your coffee, I don't know. Whatever you're going to complain about, you are ultimately complaining about God who has supplied you with those things. God who has given you those relationships, those people that He's brought into your life. If you're complaining to anyone, you're complaining of God. You're complaining about God. And Spurgeon says, the problem isn't the complaining, but instead of complaining about God, we should be complaining to God. See, That's what David says. God, I'm going to complain to you. Here's my solution, David says. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to run away. I know I wish I had wings like a dove and I could fly away to the wilderness, but I can't do that. Everywhere I look, everybody around me is dishonest and deceptive and it's treacherous and I don't know what to do about it and I can't escape it. So here's what I'm going to do. God, I'm going to complain to you. He says, all day long, morning and noon and night, you're going to hear my voice. I'm going to be complaining to you. When I'm down... When I'm afraid, when I'm attacked, when I'm hurt, when I'm treated unfairly, when I'm slandered, when I'm betrayed, Lord, you're going to hear my voice. David really believed that God would defend him and help him. He was absolutely convinced that the Lord would keep his promise to the man who trusted in him, to the one who obeyed him. That's why he prayed. That's why he could say, I'm going to deal with these threats by taking them to God, day and night. He's going to hear my voice. 
And I'm afraid that so often the reason that we don't pray as we should is that we really don't believe God will do anything about it. We see wicked and ungodly men and women doing whatever they want, breaking their word, taking advantage of those who depend on them, who trust in them. And we don't see justice being done, and we despair that justice will ever be done. That's what David talks about again in the second half of verse 19. They don't change. Right? He says they never change. That's why they don't fear God. I mean, you can go back to, the, to David's time and you know what you'll find? Men don't fear God. It's nothing different today. Look around you. What do we see? Men don't fear God. Nothing has changed. The sinful heart doesn't change. The act of, of wicked people doesn't change. Wicked men do wicked things. They don't show any respect for their Creator. They don't show any fear of His judgment. Their words are like butter. David says, dripping with cream from their lips. That's a vivid picture of the words of these wicked men. But David says, that's what it appears, but their heart, their heart is filled with war. What an incredible picture. I mean, just think of the, the sweetness of and the creaminess of butter. And David says, that's what their words are, but boy, what's in their heart? Far different. He says it's like oil, but it's actually swords that are drawn. I remember when we read this psalm when we were going through our Bible reading last month, and the kids and I were reading it, and I remember asking them, why would a sword be drawn? What's that mean? We only draw a sword for one purpose. To use it. Because you intend to kill. Because you intend to harm and hurt. You, you don't use a sword to perform surgery and do good. <laughs> you use a sword to cause injury. To cause death. And David says their words are like oil, but they're really drawn swords. They are intending to harm and destroy and to kill. That's what they're trying to do. It would be easy to despair. It would be easy to give in to fear. To give up and just run away. That might seem like the safest option, the best option. But David chose a different route and so should you, and so should I. He chose to pray. He chose to trust in the Lord, his God. I love what Derek Kidner said about this. He said, in driving God's servant to prayer, the enemy has already overreached himself. Get that. When the enemy drives you to pray, he's already gone too far. He's already undercut himself. He's already set the clock ticking on his own defeat, his own destruction. Why? Because that's how powerful it is when we pray to our God who is faithful. That's why Peter was thinking back to Psalm 55 and verse 22 in 1 Peter 5, 7 when he says, 
Cast your care on him because he cares for you. I was thinking back on this psalm. Cast your burden on the Lord, verse 22 says, and he shall sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. Did you notice what verse 22 doesn't say, though? Verse 22 doesn't say, cast your burden on the Lord and he'll take it away. Do you notice that? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, cast your burden on the Lord and your life will become easy. Cast your burden on the Lord and there'll be no conflict. Cast your burden on the Lord and you'll never be betrayed. It doesn't say that. What it says is, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. The word sustain is, well, it's actually what it sounds like. It's sustenance. Provide food. God is saying, what David is saying here in the Word of God is saying, cast your burden on the Lord and He will give you the support you need, the essential things you need to be able to stand up and continue. He will give you strength. He will give you sustenance and support. Do you have a complaint? Okay, take it to the Lord. Do you need to cry out loud? David is saying here, he's not saying, I'm going to pray quietly. He's saying, I'm going to roar. It's a loud noise, he says. Do you ever need to cry out loud? Okay. Cry out to your God. He cares for you. He will uphold you. He will sustain you. This is the promise of God's word to everyone who trusts him. Of course, that's not all that David has to say. The Lord will sustain the righteous, the man or woman who trusts in him, but God does not ignore sin. And he does not ignore sinners. He will bring them down to the pit of destruction. That's what he talks about in verse 23. Their lives will be cut off. David classifies them as bloodthirsty and deceitful men. This is the end of those who love violence and oppression. But notice, if we read through all of the psalm, we see it's it's not just those we would classify as violent. It's also the end of those who engage in deceit, those who lie. The man who breaks his covenant by abusing the trust of his friend, the one who uses flattery to hide the drawn sword that is his tongue. You could say, well, everybody does it. You could say, well, I'm not as bad as somebody else. But it doesn't matter. The Bible warns us that God will judge every man according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. No one will escape judgment by comparing himself to other men who are more wicked. No one will escape judgment by blaming society and saying, well, it was on the walls, it was in the marketplace, it was in the streets of the city, it was everywhere, it was just going on. The reason for that is evil is not something that is out there, it's something that is within us. That's again what he said back in verse 15, wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. The only solution 
is to deal with your wickedness, the sin that's inside your own heart. And the only way to do that is to humble yourself and cry out for mercy from the Lord. This is really what it means to trust in God. It means you recognize that you're a sinner and you're guilty before Him. And that God is a righteous judge. And so you confess your sin and you call on the name of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again so you could have forgiveness and peace with God. David's testimony here in this psalm is simply the testimony of the ongoing action, the residual effect, if you will, of that initial choice to humble yourself and pray and trust in the Lord. And so even as the sinner cries out for mercy and and, and, and trusts in the Lord to save him, so the person who is a believer, the man or woman who has trusted in Christ to forgive their sins, continues to trust in the Lord in the face of despair and depression and doubt. Betrayal. We trust in the Lord, and that is why we pray. Let's close with.